that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm your host, and I'm the editor of the North American Anglican at NorthAmAnglican.com. And today I'm joined by your other host, Deacon Andrew Brazier. How are you, Deacon? Hey, doing good, Jesse. How are you doing today? Um, so far, so good. We've, we've been uh, off to a little bit of a rough start here uh, with our recording. Um, I think we've both been visited by our children. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, some of it was providential, so, you know, I, it's okay. But I think I've had enough coffee that I'm just determined to plow through any difficulties that should raise their their ugly heads. And I don't, <laughs> that's not personal against my children, but... <laughs> I like this idea. So, listener, you may hear the sounds of children beckoning to be recorded, and they just make it their wish this time, so... <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, my, my daughter literally found a hole in a teddy bear she got at a garage sale, which is her as big as her, and only as she was leaving the room did I realize she was begging to be permitted to enter into the teddy bear. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, she, daughter, she wants to wear this toy, uh, <laughs> which is a little creepy, but it, it is what it is. That's, uh, that's my burden to bear. But- that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't have as it, good of a story. The, the, the kiddos are just simply sick over here, but also curious. So, But that's that's pretty much par for the course. That's the kind of thing that I could see uh, you know, my, my daughter uh, or my son, for that matter, doing. So, <laughs> yeah, Although right did. now, the pastime for my son is to take a little... It's not even a pop gun toy. It's you're, You'll get a kick out of this. It's a little unicorn that my uh, <laughs> daughter got. It has a little ball that you put in its nose and it pops it out so he proceeds to walk around and shoot me with it as i'm typing up doing work you know blogging you know sending an email you name it love it <laughs> love it yeah there the kids have got to make sure we're keeping keeping a pace keeping up that's true. oh that's funny yeah there's a lot of unicorn stuff laying around my house too I guess the '80s are back, people. It's maybe, maybe so. You know, I mean, like it is in the uh, the King James. It's in the Coverdale Psalter originally. So, yes, there be true. unicorns, people. Look it up. <laughs> that's right. And uh, which brings us back to Anglicanism, which is uh, a <laughs> a sometime theme of this podcast. Man, what a segue! It's one for the in, ages, right there. Yeah, here. Hey, you set it up. It was bump <laughs> set. I just was right there. I had to spike it. Um, now we've been going through a an excellent book by the the late Reverend Doctor Peter Toon, or uh, the Great Toon, as uh, our friend on Twitter Wycliffe called him. Uh, 
That's so, good. I missed that. Yes, the great <laughs> tune, which kind of sounds like the great Oz, but even even more <laughs> mysterious and reverent. Um, so we've been reading his book, uh, Knowing God Through the Liturgy, which you listener can find online. Isn't that right, Andrew? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's on uh, New Scriptorium. Uh, website uh, scriptorium is uh, script and then o r i u m. Uh, we'll try to put it like in, in show notes or on the Facebook page because uh, if you don't know about this website, it's excellent. It's fantastic. Uh, we have a friend, uh, I guess an online friend. I never met him before, but he runs the website. Does a great job of putting not only tunes works up there under the tune collection, which is where you can find uh, this work, knowing God that we're going through, but also just a lot of Anglican classics. Uh, that are out of print or they may be in print from some sort of, you know, uh, uh, republishing group. Uh, but it's a great resource. Check it out, people. And if you want to read along with us, uh, that's the place to go to. Yes, absolutely. Um, this is, uh, and many of the, the, the works are indeed out of print, but um, uh, Father Lawrence uh, actually got permission to host these tune works here um, from uh, from uh, Dr. Tune's widow. So this is um, they, a rare resource. Definitely check it out. Definitely uh, follow along with us so that you know that we're not just making things up that, <laughs> that Peter Tune said. Um, but we've been tracking through the preface and the first chapter, and we're about to embark here on the second chapter titled Liturgy Since Cranmer. And without further ado, I think I'm just going to read this first paragraph. We can pick it apart and maybe move on quickly, maybe take some time with it. How does that sound? Let's do it. Okay, chapter two, Liturgy Since Cranmer. The tradition of an English book of common prayer began in 1549 and passed through important new editions in 1552 and 1662 in England, with later revised editions in the English-speaking world of the British Empire and the nations which evolved from it. There were, of course, editions in foreign languages as well, especially for churches founded by missionary endeavor. In North America, the last revised editions, which embodied the capital C common, capital P prayer, capital T tradition, were those of 1928 in the USA and 1962 in Canada. Because of this shared tradition, by worldwide Anglicanism, it was possible until fairly recently to go to English worship, Anglican worship anywhere in the world and soon feel at home with the forms of divine service. I think that is a really important point that, um, this is Jesse speaking, not Dr. Toon, um, that I think many uh, modern Anglicans, especially those who grew up with the 79 prayer book, just don't, it's almost impossible to understand mm-hmm. that this was a unified, uh, liturgically unified 
global historical tradition. Um, and nothing really existed like it. Um, even, even in Rome, there was probably more liturgical variety. Um, and wow, you know, what we've lost in not being able to do exactly what he says, to find Anglican worship somewhere and feel at home. I know the words. I know how to do this. This is my church. These are my people. This is my liturgy, as opposed to I've got to, you know, click on every link on the website to figure out what on earth they do on a Sunday morning and what what variety is it and will there be tambourines or incense or, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> it's not such an easy matter anymore, is it? Yeah, you know, this is something that uh, I recall the Eastern Orthodox really uh, belaboring uh, whenever you look into, you know, what is Eastern Orthodoxy, they make the point that the liturgy of uh, St. John uh, Chrysostom is what you're going to hear worldwide, uh, with the exception of they do the uh, liturgy of uh, St. James, as I recall. My memory is fading, uh, fading on uh, if it's St. James, but there's a, another liturgy they right. will do, but together on certain feast days. Um, so in theory, regardless where you're at in the Eastern Orthodox Communion, you're going to hear the same liturgy. Maybe in a different language, but the same liturgy. And uh, at one time, we had that similar experience uh, for those of us in the Anglican Communion. But since the revision to the prayer books across the, uh, the varying uh, provinces, we now have uh, uncommon prayer, uh, which I'm trying to think back, and I guess the Episcopal Church would have been the first province to make that step because the alternative uh, uh, service book or alternative book of services, I'm butchering the name, that, that came in England, I think came in 1980 or 1985, sometime in the 80s, mm -hmm. which obviously was after uh, the 1979 prayer book uh, in the States. So now you can instead not only go to one church or uh, uh, in one country and a different church in another country and have different prayers all together, but even you can cross you know cross the city and go from one parish to the next and depending upon which option is being used uh, if there's a Eucharist service you may be looking at one of four different Eucharistic prayers uh, just from the 1979 Book of Common Prayer right and um, obviously uh, with the introduction of the new ACNA Book of Common Prayer um, and I believe at this point, uh, both prayer books are actually um, being permitted for use within the province in various dioceses. I'm not sure if I'm correct about that. Is this has the 79 been completely removed, or it's not been completely removed? I know that certain dioceses uh, have banned its use uh, before Cana. Um, uh, not split up before the diocese, dioceses in uh, Cana decided to go one way or the other with ACNA. Uh, the old Cana East, which I think is now Diocese of the Living Word, they renamed themselves. They have banned the 79 prayer book uh, for use, and I believe a couple of other uh, provinces, or excuse me, uh, dioceses have well. I know the Diocese of Quincy is only using uh, common worship. Um, and it's not using 79 or the new ACNA book. 
But uh, all that to be said, to answer your question, it's not a universal ban. It's on a diocese-by-diocese diocese basis. And it appears that eventually it'll either be quietly phased out or maybe there will be some sort of uh, pronouncement that it will not be used. But the ACNA uh, Constitution canons, the way the Constitution is written, it states that all those authorized prayer books, which would include the 79 prayer book, um, as of the date of the forming of ACNA, uh, would be authorized for worship. So it'll take a, a constitutional change to formally uh, ban it. But mm. Yes, well, for those of us who've been um, praying and hoping for other theological errors to be quietly phased out of the ACNA, I don't think I'll hold my breath on this one. Um, but, but, uh, and of course I'm referring to, um, the ordination of, uh, women to the priesthood, but, you know, this is, this is an interesting point that really goes to show that as much as you and I talk about classical Anglicanism or sort of the Anglican tradition of belief and practice, it really, in the end, depends on how your province that you belong to receives that tradition on paper, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you have your constitution and canons, and those will tell anybody who wants to know how your, your small-c church that you belong to receives the Anglican tradition. Um, and obviously, things can go really across the board with uh, when it comes to how that's done, especially if you compare the ACNA with um, continuing uh, jurisdictions like the Anglican Catholic Church and sort of the way that um, it all works out in ink for them as well. That's a great point, Jesse. I think that's something worth noting is that uh, two things, you know, politics in the church, you know, is never fun, but it's always existed and always will exist. Uh, and the canons and constitution are very important. Of course, you know, Jesse, I'm chancellor for the uh, jurisdiction of armed forces and, and uh, chaplaincy. Right. And that's one of my duties is to overlook the canons and constitution to make suggestions uh, about uh, what to do with them. And what you put in there is very, very key, very fundamental on not only church discipline, but on church belief and on how you receive uh, any given tradition or what tradition are you going to follow because at the end of the day you know let, let's set aside tradition as the boogeyman for a moment you know we all have a tradition in how we're going to worship and how we're going to read the bible and interpret it and the same with how are we going to practice anglicanism it's got to come somewhere and some churches may ignore their canons and constitution and just do you know whatever they want to when you know whoever is leading that church that's not really the Anglican way. I don't see that in Anglicanism, typically. Or what is more common in our uh, Anglican tradition is you look through those canons and constitution and you see that, oh, this, this diocese has got an emphasis on perhaps a strand of Anglicanism, whether or not it's Anglo-Catholicism, the more reformed elements, or it may be a more uh, broad church in the best sense of the word that's more comprehensive of the traditionally Catholic aspect of Anglicanism and the traditionally Reformed aspect of Anglicanism. And sure. I think for you and me, that's the, the center we're trying to hold is is to be Catholic is to be Reformed. And to be Reformed means a broader reform than simply uh, uh, 
Calvin's, you know, Geneva, but also the, the actual reform thinkers that were in England during the time of the Reformation. And uh, even beyond there, uh, as we go through the Anglican tradition, and as we have you know, the Caroline Divines, you know, the thinkers who uh, came out from not only the Divines, but who were in the Oxford Movement, responded to the Oxford Movement, were a lot bigger than, than just a small period of time in our history. Right. It's, you know, you really do have to look to our standards and then you look to, you know, the shared standards, I should say, of the prayer book and the 39 articles. And then you look at how your individual province or church, what have you, um, receives those standards. And then you also need to look at the history, the centuries of history of people who've been interpreting and debating those standards. And um, what you find is that Anglicans have been reluctant to sit down and articulate uh, really extensive sort of um, ironclad decisions on some of these debatable points. But at the same time, very often it is the uh, prerogative and responsibility of bishops especially when they meet to represent the whole uh, province they belong to, to say, in paper, somewhere, the buck stops here. Mm -hmm. Like, any, any point can be argued theologically. That doesn't make every point equally valid. And you simply, as a community, have to decide, here is where we don't go. And it might be because we know for sure it's an error, and it might just be because it's contentious enough that it's just wise to avoid it, you know. And and so that both sorts of decisions happen, and really that's where a constitution and canons can be very useful. Of course, you also need to have um, bishops and and pastors in the church who have enough backbone to actually keep people, you know, hold them accountable to obedience, um, and that's very difficult. Thing to do, you know. Uh, <clears throat> again, I, I I use this term uh, sort of quite often, but people who are late of the Episcopal Church, especially of a more conservative bent, tend to be have a fair amount of scar tissue, you could say, from being bullied by liberal activist bishops mm -hmm. and priests, mm -hmm. you know. And so, in conservative circles. Uh, I think that sometimes where people are a bit reluctant to sort of put their foot down. Uh, and so that's, that's just sort of the dynamics of 2019. You know, this is just where we're at. I think that um, North American Anglicanism of an Orthodox stripe across many jurisdictions has a lot of growing to do. Um, and as the Episcopal Church continues its steady decline, I think that some of the sort of reactions, maybe overreactions, that we've um, adopted will begin to course correct as that just stops being the standard by which we measure things. Yeah, um, but I have to agree. I think that the war that many uh, Anglicans fought within the Episcopal Church has shaped so many. And uh, I was fortunate enough that I came to Anglicanism you know, I jokingly say I came straight to Anglicanism. I didn't make a pit stop in the Episcopal Church because 
what had been done. Uh, the, the scene that, that I arrived to, the, the split had already fundamentally had happened. Uh, ACNA had not yet been formally organized, but there was already um, the uh, the partnership with many uh, African bishops, South American bishops, and others. Right. And uh, so I came into Anglicanism and uh, um, not knowing the, the war, well, knowing the war, but not being part of the battle and the scars. So all that to be said, I think that it's important that especially for those of us who uh, have not been in the war, been in the battle, to be respectful and mindful of understanding, you know, what some people have gone through. Uh, yes, exactly. So that when we have these, these healthy debates we need to have, we also understand the perspective so that we're arguing uh, our position, you know, in love, as St. Paul would probably tell us to. And, uh, and not only that, but I think it's also fundamental because there's – a whole group of us who have come into Anglicanism and then we carry the weight of whatever tradition we came from and we need to be formed by Anglicanism and that's why I'm very you know, big on talking about the prayer book and talking about the articles because so many of us who came into Anglicanism this is a new concept and we need right. to be formed by this prayer book that has you know the classic theology the theology that uh, reflects the articles of religion and also to be familiar with the articles so that we're truly being formed in the faith that we're in and not simply knitting a quilt of, well, I like this from my past and I like this from Anglicanism. Let's just weave it together and then call mm -hmm. it Anglicanism. So that's kind of no, my yeah. sort of box on that. No, I, I think you're, you're really make the right points there. Um, and the thing about not being formed by the Anglican tradition is that you can't possibly, by definition, even realize how unformed you are until you until you begin begin to become informed and sort of recreated in that sort of mold. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's like uh, Socrates who said, you know, I all, all I know is that I know nothing. Right. Exactly. Only, only the only the wisest guy in all of Athens can say something like that, mm -hmm. because he, more than anyone else, is sort of aware of his limitations. You know. <clears throat> and similarly, and that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Go continue. Ahead. No. 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 Continue, please. Well, I, I just think you know. Similarly, when it comes to any sort of tradition, um, I always find, and I was this way. I was absolutely this way. There's. There are, quite frankly, a bunch of excited, theologically excited young men coming out of mainstream evangelicalism, just like I did, directly into Anglicanism, as you uh, put it, Andrew. And uh, very often it's, oh, awesome, here's this great sort of uh, sacramental and liturgical bare-bone skeletal structure mm -hmm. upon which I can lay the deep and profound wisdom of my 20 to 30 some odd years of being on, a Christian on this earth, you know. And so I'm going to bring to bear all these great insights that I have onto this um, sort of skeletal structure, which is just absolutely, in my opinion, the wrong attitude to take. Not to say that you don't have insights or wisdom, but I think you have to begin always sort of on your knees at the foot of uh, the master and sort of as a student learning what is this thing mm -hmm. and do I even know what it is before I start saying, well, this could be moved over here, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well said. I mean, that, that was the same, same experience that I had. And frankly, um, it was because of church history, reading it, that led me to the Anglican Way. And I brought my own experiences. I made my own quilt. And what formed me was starting the daily office and then failing a lot, you know, but <laughs> getting that in my system enough to where I started memorizing the prayers and use cradle of prayer. Yeah. Use, use cradle of prayer. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was fortunate because I'm not from an Anglican background, but I love to read and I'm a church history nerd. So I read my way through from the patristic era all the way to the reformation read about the debates that we're reading about now about the 79 prayer book. So I made the decision that I found Anglicanism in a 79 prayer book parish, which is common because it's so common today. But I was like, I'm mm -hmm. going to use the 28 because from everything I'm reading, there's something missing from the 28 to 79. I saw that when comparing the two. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then as I got developed and formed in the daily office, you know, here we are, you know, we named the podcast, you know, the miserable offenders. I started getting my theology shaped. I mean, I was not, I was very much an Arminian uh, in my theological philosophy sure. uh, coming in. And I was originally raised Methodist, went through uh, uh, Southern Baptist circles. Of course, I was reformed uh, Southern Baptist. But as I read the prayer book, I was like, man, I was like, this is so Augustinian. Reading through the articles, I was like, this is too, do I agree with it? Going through the scripture, it shaped me to where I was like, no, yes, this hmm. is this is correct, and I am wrong. And so I had to submit myself to the prayer book. And frankly, I, th I think we're very desperately in need of mentors, of, of fathers, spiritual fathers in Christ, to form so many uh, young men and women uh, and even re-educate older uh, men and women, Anglicans, into the Anglican way. And it really takes, takes you to, to have to stop and say, it's not about what I think you know, the scripture says it's about me submitting to the learned Christians, our forefathers of the ages, and to say, it's not what I think is the new trendy thing, you know, um, that's going to get people in the door. It's not what I think is the most relevant way to interpret a scripture passage. It's about what is the eternal truth, the faith, excuse me, the faith um, that was once provided to us, the faith that we're to contend for and the faith that we're supposed to end the race in, that's the faith that I want to follow and I want to die for. And it's not natural, you know, that the human, the natural old man in you, the old Adam, wants you to go off and do your own thing. You want to look at the fruit and take it, you know, and eat it. But you really have to discipline yourself and be a disciple of Christ. And what brought me into Anglicanism is I can be a faithful disciple of Christ. I can submit myself to an authority that I trust because it's based in Scripture and be formed by it. And that's why I'm on this huge soapbox now. But that's why the prayer book is so crucial. Keep so going. Important. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> because the prayer book is, is the way of the laity. It's the way of the common man. Common prayer is for the common man to shape the way we think, the way we pray, the way we worship. And that's a discipline that even if you have the worst you know, priest in the world, you know, the worst preacher, you know, in your local uh, parish, mine, because it's me, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you're still going to be shaped by the prayer book, you know, no matter what the failings are of any given minister, those words of the prayer are solid, they're true, you're going to hear the scripture over and over again, and that's the reason why I'm Anglican, is that it's, it's an ancient way, it's a biblical way, and what we pray is what we believe, so it's very important, and I'll stop talking now. <laughs>
No, no, it, listener, you, you did, you missed it, but uh, Andrew did in fact drop a mic <laughs> at the at the end of that. No, this all all well said, and you know sometimes we we go astray from uh, the text, but in a weird way, it always ends up coming back full circle. Uh, so yeah, this this is just these are points that need to be made. This is part of our context, which you know, actually, honestly, the 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 background of of or of um, you know America's spiritual landscape or whatnot is not exactly the same as it was for Peter Toon, and so there are there are always new reactions and and ways that we need to discuss this ongoing conversation but as you put it and as we're kind of trying to emphasize here i think there's a real importance to um submitting to the possibility that maybe you have something to learn you know and and i just can't imagine anybody being a good student of anything if they can't just sit down and say here i am to learn i'll decide whether this is something i reject after the fact Right, rather than to come in with all your presuppositions and an incapacity to even understand or fully comprehend this thing that you're either rejecting or um, see as just kind of a means to your own end. Anyways, we don't need another soapbox here. What we do need to do, though, is uh, get a couple more paragraphs in here because uh, Dr. Toon is talking about Um, the alternative service book and common prayer um, and exactly you know this this issue that you mentioned of you know coming into uh, reading your way into Anglicanism and deciding that the 79 prayer book wasn't for you Andrew you want to how about read those next two paragraphs because they kind of go together yeah starting here with uh, in the 1990s yeah Yeah. In the 1990s, we are experiencing a growing variety of forms of worship, not only in different countries, but also within countries. This variety is usually based upon authorized books of prayer, which still use the title or claim the concept of, quote, common prayer, e.g., the Book of Common Prayer, 1979, the USA, and the Alternative Service Book, 1985, in Canada. However, These books of varying titles have begun a new tradition of public worship and prayer for Anglicanism, not only in North America, but also around the world, the ASB 1980 in England. Their creators have often claimed and still claim to be restoring valuable ancient forms and ways to modern worship without changing the basic doctrine. However, their primary thrust seems to be that of encouraging a seemingly endless variety of possibilities into divine worship and thereby introducing a dull mediocrity into worship. In this way, they claim to speak to a contemporary person in modern language. Gone is one excellent form of words, and in its place are several alternatives, none of which is aesthetically memorable or theologically satisfying. Gone also is the clarity of biblical and patristic teaching on fundamental matters, and in its place is at best a fuzzy or careless presentation of certain basic doctrines. Further, while it is argued that this modern way involves the participation of the laity as the people of God in worship, much more than was the case in former years, the usual position in practice is that the priest becomes the expert to choose between the variety of possible forms of service in the book. Jesse, what are your thoughts on those two bombs that uh, 
Dr. Toon is presenting us. <laughs> well, I love that he points out the obvious, or what should be the obvious, I think, which is that uh, the tradition that continues to claim the concept of common prayer in its titles has clearly moved into something that um, is far more diverse and he and, and much more mediocre than what was in place before. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, he says that you know it seems as though there was some desire to restore some valuable ancient uh, liturgical practices that have been lost to history, which to me is always you, you kind of have to wonder whether or not some of those things were lost to history for a reason. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, I'm I'm Protestant enough to to believe that sometimes you you have to go to the sources, but yep. um, when you in in sort of the wake of the liturgical movement and the the sort of chaos that came about from some of these moves, uh, you, it just seems that some of the scholarship wasn't quite what we thought it was, and frankly what was achieved even practically um did not you know the the only real noticed change was that what was gone what was before is basically gone now or optional Mm -hmm. and what we have now is whatever the priest wants to do basically yeah yeah um yeah so that's that's my thought yeah i mean the the one thing i'll add to that is the the questioning of the scholarship that much of the liturgical movement was based upon is my biggest concern. Um, as you said, one of the, the, the Protestant uh, mottos was to go back to the sources. Uh, Ed Fontes, which I don't speak Latin, I'm probably butchering, but the, uh, the basis of it is to go back to the source of uh, primary scripture. But also you can apply that to, if we're changing the liturgy, let's go back to the source of the scholarship, the source of the documents for what you're changing the liturgy to, because we discussed last episode, changes can be made and have been made even in the classical prayer book tradition, but at a very small pace, at a very slight pace, that kind of echoes C.S. Lewis in an essay that he wrote that he suggested once a generation maybe change a word <laughs> at most. And, uh, mm-hmm. of course, you know, the, the actual change to the classic prayer book was more than simply a word, a generation, but... If you look at the uh, uh, 500 years uh, of the prayer book tradition, you know it's probably almost at a, 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 a glacial pace like that. And all that to be said, it's concerning that um, so many churches, not only Anglicanism, but so many other churches, um, you know, really put their hat into the ring and said, "Let's follow the liturgical movement," uh, despite what later comes about in scholarship that criticizes many of the moves and many of the claims from the liturgical movement and this is just kind of my two cents of looking at it you know with hindsight is that it really appears that the liturgical movement thought it was going to bring about a unity in christianity that never happened you had vatican ii uh occur in which the uh the roman catholic liturgy is is changed you have uh in 1979 you have the uh, a Book of Common Prayer in 1979 produced, which follows the liturgical movement. 
And uh, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, which I don't know what the timeline was when uh, the Methodists uh, in America changed up their uh, uh, book of discipline and their uh, prayer book, but very much what I experienced growing up was a little bit more stripped down version of the 79 Book of Common Prayer. So everyone's kind of sure. going towards the same type of worship. And it's interesting and ironic that there's kind of a same underlying common worship, but there's not truly common worship because so many things can be changed, inserted, moved around, and everyone still has their own uh, theological um, uh, decision-making to do when changing the prayers. So you don't really have a, a unity like what I think the liturgical uh, movement was hoping for and aiming for. And if anything, we had more of a uh, watering down of the liturgy of how can we get as close as possible to other communions, still retain some of our own theological distinctives, and then hope and pray for some sort of Christian unity, which we hope and we do pray for in the, the prayer book, the classic prayer book. But it, it just gives me qualms because I look back at it and I feel like we tried to move to the center. We ended up mixing and muddling a lot of that good theology that should have never been muddled in the first place. And it would be a lot better for Romans to be Roman, for Anglicans to be Anglican, for Orthodox to be Orthodox, and to have those discussions at the high levels that typically occur to see is there really and truly agreement in what we believe versus let's make it appear that our worship is very close to each other um, as much as possible. Uh, and that being said, I mean, the Eastern Orthodox, as far as I know, never really went through a liturgical movement. There, there's no version of the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom that I know of that has been uh, modernized or made contemporary in the sense of reordering the way that liturgy is done. I could be wrong on that, but... It yeah, really, I, I guess they just have the old calendarists. And, you know, that is the, true, yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I mean, that's that's a good point. It really seems like the internal integrity of each tradition or community branch of the church, whatever you want to call it, um, was sacrificed for this sort of um, pretty meager external unity with one another. And... It, I mean, isn't it hilarious that the reaction to all of this has been that so many of these traditions have actually gone back to uh, the older unity, which they maybe didn't even recognize before. Hmm. I mean, the, the Roman uh, mass has been sort of reworked in English again. And now that sounds much more like the prayer book does. Mm -hmm. um, they've gone out of their way to preserve the Anglican tradition through uh, the ordinariate liturgically. Um, and again, you know, we talked about this last week, but yeah. in, in Lutheranism, the common service sounds very, it's like 80% Cranmer, if, if not more. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's a sense in which the counter liturgical movement already shows more that we had more in unity in the old ways mm -hmm. than this sort of explosion of possibilities that uh, really, yeah, served to lower the bar. And of course, we all know that when you lower the bar, then you, you're going to find more sort of surface level uh, kindred 
you know, features with other people. It's like, well, look, hey, we're all human. Yeah. Like, congratulations, congratulations. You know? <laughs> like, you know, ten fingers, you too? Golly. You know? <laughs> look at this unity we've achieved. Yeah. Um, well, and I think the the interesting thing about that kind of unity is, in it, you know, reading this reminded me of uh, an article that I read by um, Rod Dreher hmm? in the American Conservative called "Strong Churches, Weak Churches," and he's responding to um, an edition of the Masculinist, which is. Uh, Aaron Wren's newsletter, and Wren's a pretty interesting guy because he's a New York City guy, kind of an urbanist. You know, he likes to talk about city culture and startups and all that stuff. But he also has some some really interesting things to say about, um, you know, what it takes to be, uh, you know, an Orthodox Christian in modern society. And one of these, uh, you know, um, newsletters, he talks about uh, high group organizations and low group organizations. Um, and the difference is basically a high group church has more, it requires more of its members and it's more costly personally to leave <laughs> a high group church versus a low group organization that basically, uh, you can show up and you're a part of it. And if you were to stop showing up at any time, no one would really miss you. Right. And so those are kind of extreme examples, but think about it from the Anglican perspective. Think about, you know, you were mentioning from the reading last week, CS Lewis saying, you know, we move one, you know, one word. It takes us a century to move a word, you know, and now we go from that to, uh, rather than have this standard that we've held on to for so long and unifies so many people, we've got a liturgical tradition that by its very nature is averse to cohesion. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and think about what that means, what, what the new form of unity even is. And I think it, it does create this situation where... Um, it becomes a church where it doesn't take that much to be involved and no one's going to miss you when you're gone. And that form of Christianity that is so typical of modern American, you know, the spiritual sort of landscape Mm -hmm. uh, is not resistant to secularism. And you see so often that, you know, these kinds of communities... Um, it's not just the social cohesion, it becomes uh, a theological rot, and it follows the liturgical rot, etc., etc. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I have to pull that up and and read it. Um, Because you made me think about something where you were explaining this concept from from his article, that really we've traded in common worship in in a variety of traditions out there for common patterns of worship. And it's ironic that in in the attempts to make a common unified worship across all of Christian uh, Christendom, we ended up just basically having a a variety of a common pattern with a variety of choose your own adventure. And so what you end up with is still the individualism, uh, individualism 
uh, of your respective membership, maybe even worse than before. Because whereas sure. Anglicans had Anglican theology, Roman had Roman theology, you know, and Presbyterians, you know, had their theology, and Methodists, and so on and so on. And you could distinctively tell what you believed in through how you worshipped and, and your your theology. Now you have more of a common muddle of worship. Right. But then you can change how you worship in any given, you know, day of the week or any given Sunday. And as a result, the members of those uh, traditions aren't really held accountable to believing something because the worship is muddled down in what you're saying and you're not doing the same um, worship on a consistent basis to be formed. So what you end up with is a Christian who's not really discipled and not really disciplined in their faith and the mere Christianity bar drops from a true mere Christianity to a you know, lowest common denominator, what can we just agree on? Christianity. And right. I'm not really working out this line of thought very well, but I think that's fascinating because from kind of a, a ground level perspective, I think that's what we see in a lot of our a lot of our parishes. Um, I feel like I hear the same common complaints, especially online, which of course can get amplified, but from my Lutheran brothers, Reformed uh, brothers, you know, uh, Roman Catholic, traditionalists, you name it, um, you know, what is wrong with our churches, you know, where no one is really being formed in the faith? And I've been real big on, on catechesis, and it's probably because if we're not instilling within our worship what we believe, and we're not catechizing our people, then how can we really disciple them into what they believe? And if we really lowered it down to the lowest common denominator, Christianity, then are we surprised that we just get Christians who reflect that lowest common denominator and they think mm -hmm. that's the end all be all? That's all I need to know, right? Just right. It's like we're practicing for a test, you know? Just tell me what I need to know so that I can pass and get into heaven. But that's well, not the gospel. The gospel <laughs> is transformation. Right. I mean, imagine just, you know, mentioning catechesis, which works through repetition and memory, right? You mm -hmm. And then as you recite, those words over and over again you're each each time you do it is a, a new opportunity to sort of ponder their meaning but imagine trying to catechize a child and you say okay well we're going to use the prayer book catechism monday and then tuesday we'll do heidelberg mm -hmm. wednesday we'll go westminster Thursday, Luther's small, Friday, Luther's large, right? I mean, I mean, yep. you would have a very confused child and, you know, you may actually just spoil them for Christianity altogether. Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it, it just is a really easy illustration to show that this, this variety um, does not, it, it's not human scaled, I guess, is and that's a big critique I have of so much of modern society is that we've, we've moved so far away from our natural modes of living mm -hmm. that we've lost the, human, the natural human God-given scale of community, of the way we do worship, of you know all these. It, we have so many things at our fingertips that humanity has never had before. And we just don't know what to do with them all, including liturgical options. I mean, it, I, I can't imagine something that would be less to be celebrated 
that what makes my community similar to your community is that we seem to be incoherent in similar ways, mm-hmm. right? That's that's not yeah. true yeah. ecumenism. That's embarrassing. <laughs> um, that's well said. I mean, I like what you said earlier, Jesse, about the we're seeing a counter liturgical movement occur, and to a certain extent, you see that with the ACNA prayer book because. It is now. It's taken a seventy-nine prayer book, like we talked about the last episode, and then and working backwards. But it is, and I hate to say working backwards. It sounds so not progressive. But let's just, you know, it is what it is. It's it is going back to the sources, you know, back right. to the prayer book, which is a good thing because it's the theology of Anglicanism. And I still, I clearly have my qualms about the prayer book. You do as well. I'm not trying to bless everything, but you do see a counter liturgical movement starting happening. And that the people are restless, and it is trying to go back to you know the Cramer language, go back to the at least go back to the pattern, you know, in, in some instances of uh, Cramer's uh, worship that he set for the Anglican Church, uh, along with the fact that the ACNA is coming out with a catechism, which uh, from the blogosphere, which take this for a grain of salt, it appears that the revised version of the ACNA Catechism is coming out in like January 2020. I think it was listed on Amazon recently. And uh, I bring up the Catechism to point out, well, I'm glad that the ACNA is doing this because it's trying to at least unify. We're not going to have unified worship, but we're going to have a unified Catechism. And we need a common place to come to to form uh, those who are in the church. Uh, Of course, having the Catechism is one thing. We've got to actually implement it and actually teach it. And uh, an ACNA one, for that matter, it's, it's a beast of a catechism because it's really going back to kind of the ancient uh, model of you're catechizing uh, pagans. Uh, in our case, a lot of times sure. Christian yeah. pagans who know some of the talk but don't know how to, to live the walk. And uh, to that extent, we need more of that, more of commonality and making theological distinctives not for, for distinctive you know sake, not to be, you know, hey, we're Anglican and we're great because we're Anglican, but to have set principles so we can actually disciple people and disciple them in the way of scriptures. Because that's the great thing about this Anglican way is that I use that term and, and it's probably not a good way to use because really the Anglican way is the biblical way, is the ancient way. And to pull, you know, from Star Wars, which I love so much, we all need a master at the end of the day. And we all have a master. As the great uh, Jedi master Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. And everybody mm. is serving somebody. It may be serving yourself, which means you're just you know, serving sin, death, and the devil. Or you may be serving our Lord and our God. But we need a guide. And scripture is the ultimate guide. But we also need someone in our life who's a spiritual father, who's a catechist, or, a catechist, or is a a guide on how to live the Christian life. And I think what you and I are basically saying, Jesse, is that, and what Dr. Toon is saying is common prayer helps form the person in the way and right. life of Jesus Christ. And that's why catechism is also so crucial. And one of the things that I've uh, been working on, um, on this kind of book of modernized uh, family prayers that come from, um, old Anglican sources, they're not my own prayers, it's uh, from classic Anglicans that I've been working on, is uh, also doing just like a slight modernization of the classic prayer book catechism, since we don't have that classic catechism in the ACNA prayer book. And it just very simply 
very quickly, but very deeply, goes through not only the, the sacramental life, but also the creed, the commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Um, it really sure is that, good, isn't it? The, it the is. classic prayer book catechism. I, yeah. Whenever I revisit, I'm kind of reminded and, you know, a little bit surprised um, at just how deftly it sort of moves from one, uh, you know, really big subtopic to the next. And um, it covers the basics, that's for sure. It does, it does. Well, yeah, I think I think those are all good points. At the end of the day, um, you know, we kind of started off earlier talking about, you know, what your church believes in its constitution and, you know, whether that, in, and of course that's going to include the uh, permitted liturgies. It's going to include um, whatever catechisms are uh, authorized. And all of this is to say is that this is the, the theological content um, representing... Uh, Yes, uh, representing um, sort of the history of biblical interpretation for your tradition, for mm -hmm. your church. So, you know, by now, hopefully some of the, the debates that have wa been waged over the centuries have been settled. You know, that's why we have creeds, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the truth is, is this is always going to be a necessary task for the church um, without having some kind of cohesive theological framework to work with, you can't form people within the church, but you also can't have any kind of prophetic voice for the culture outside of the church. You can't um, operate in a way that um, challenges the world with God's eternal truths. You know, and I think people in the ACNA and other sort of Orthodox Anglican jurisdictions um, take pride in the fact that, well, you know, it seemed pretty obvious that um, we belonged to a church or the Episcopal Church is frankly uh, going against Scripture in some really obvious ways and in some really obvious ways that happen to be popular cultural features of our society. And um, if, you know, I, I think this really just underscores the fact that we all understand the need for that capacity to have <laughs> the prophetic voice. But sometimes we forget uh, what is required as a platform and to build the foundation for that, for any sort of individual church body to speak faithfully on behalf of of Christ, you know, to, to the world. But you, I think, um, we've covered a lot today. We haven't covered a lot of tune, but <laughs> <laughs> surely we'll get back into, uh, this next section, uh, solid foundation. Um, and I'm sure he's got some great things to say. Uh, but I think we've covered a lot of ground as far as relating some of these points to our current context and hey that's important stuff to do it is it is and i think that you know really for, for the listeners out there is i think it's good for us to continue to have these conversations you know in our local communities of 
how can we not only be better disciples for Christ, but what tools are at our disposal to be disciplined ourselves and to disciple others? And what Dr. Toon is pointing out is the classic prayer book tradition. And the tools that are in that prayer book are numerous. It's not only the Sunday worship, which so many uh, American churchgoers think of as being church, but also being mm -hmm. formed by the daily office. Um, it's why I've been so big on, on family prayer, because the 28 has those classic small editions of uh, family prayer. And that's what uh, uh, the book that I'm working on, that I'm editing, is taking, is... Uh, is uh, the bishop who wrote those prayers wrote them in the 1600s and there's actually a longer extended uh, form of family devotions he wrote and the 28 prayer book just simply took portions of that to put it in the book of common prayer and I think we need to rediscover a discipline of uh, common prayer that will teach us form us and help us uh, develop uh, Christians within our own household much less develop better Christians uh, within our own parish well, it definitely starts at home, I agree, and uh, we'll of course be waiting and uh, looking forward to the, the publication of that book. Um, anything else, Deacon, before we uh, sign off here? Nothing else from here. It's always been a pleasure, and look forward to doing this again, where we can continue on with uh, Dr. Toon's work. Likewise. All right, well, take care. You too. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.